Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In this week's podcast, we are going to talk about job-related trauma as well as medical trauma. I'm also going to talk about how we can manage life and expectations and goals when we're struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts. Then I'm going to dig into some tips to assist you if you struggle with opening up in therapy. I'm going to talk about what it really looks like to ask for help. And finally, I'm going to explain what the eldest daughter syndrome is. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into question number one. This question says, Katie, my question is about job related trauma. I'm a school crisis interventionist, and I work with students who can become really dysregulated and physical. Could this physical aggression towards me be considered traumatic? I feel like I'm almost desensitized to it because it's so typical. I also feel like I can't call it trauma because it's my job, and I choose to be in this work. Thanks for everything you do. This is a great question, and I too used to work at a place similar to this where I worked at a foster, a, a pregnant or parenting foster teen home, meaning the teens in there were either, they were all women, they were either pregnant or uh, parents of children. And there were about 64 girls in there, all teenagers, all under 18. That's why it was a foster home. And they would get extremely physical and we had to learn how to restrain them, even if they were pregnant, how to do it safely so it doesn't harm the baby, so much stuff like that. And it was actually kind of terrifying. And the truth is that trauma doesn't care what the circumstances are. What it means to be traumatized is if we fear for our own life or safety or our own life or safety of someone else. And it doesn't have to be physical safety. I know when we say safety, we often think only physical safety, but it can also also be emotional safety. That's why emotional abuse is still considered abuse and can be traumatic, right? And also, I just want to tease out the fact that we can be traumatized and not develop PTSD, And we can be traumatized and develop PTSD. A lot of that has to do with how frequent it's happening and also our level of resilience, like our level of our abilities to bounce back, right? So keeping that all in mind, my short answer to this question is, yes, aggression and threats against your safety at work can be traumatic. It's like, think of it, another good example would be like a police officer. Yes, they choose to be in that line of work, but does that make the situations where their life is at risk or they're threatened any less traumatizing? No. And I'm grateful each and every day that people choose to be in those lines of work, right? And and the kids that you work with are grateful for you, whether they know it or not, for being able to do this and sustain. And so, yes, 
we can be traumatized at work. It doesn't matter if we choose to be in that line of work. That doesn't negate the effects it can have on our nervous system and on our overall mental health. Now, the biggest piece that I would say personally helped me when I worked in a place like this where I was repeatedly kind of threatened and had to physically restrain people and it could get overwhelming. Um, When I was in that situation, the best thing was like connecting with my coworkers. And I know that sounds kind of obvious, but we would go out for happy hours and we would chitty chat during the day. And I became really close with a lot of them. And that really helped because it gave me a space where I could talk about it with people who really got it. And we would do all sorts of things, take a workout class. We would, like I said, go out to happy hour. We would take hikes on the weekends. We would do all sorts of different things. And it was a great way to connect, to get that connection, that true understanding of an experience, be reminded that we're not alone. And then I also had that support while I was at work. And so finding some ways to regulate, also taking breaks. I used to go in the bathroom at work because it was like we had our own separate bathroom and just like, like kind of without realizing that shaking it out because this was like pre me going to grad school that that was even helpful but I would kind of just like breathe and like stand there and and like shake it off a little bit give yourself time to regulate because they're dysregulated you're trying to regulate them then you need to take an opportunity to regulate yourself you know you have all of these this education these tools let's use them for our own help as well um but yes we do become somewhat desensitized to it but I wouldn't say Based on what I know about trauma, I wouldn't say that the repetition of something, it not feeling as, quote unquote, as big of a deal, us feeling a little bit desensitized, I do not believe that in and of itself means that it's less traumatic as it continues. Complex trauma is like that, where it becomes less of a, a quote unquote, big deal because it's not new. It's not as, uh, we kind of have like an idea of what's going to happen, but there are still unknowns, right? When it involves someone else, we don't really know what's going to happen and it is still traumatizing. Our reactions just get lower and lower. And I would argue that based on the research I've read, that that desensitization is more of a learned helplessness in some ways, rather than a lessening of the traumatic or terrifying effects. And what I mean by that is that when we are when we try to help ourselves and we try to uh, regulate or we're trying to figure it out, right? And no matter what we do, we keep engaging and keep interacting with these traumatizing experiences and these people who could be harmful, right? We keep engaging with it over and over and over. What that does to us sometimes is uh, causes us to kind of stop fighting it, stop trying. We become desensitized. Our nervous system doesn't get as queued up because it keeps happening and we're not, nothing's changing. And so that's why the response or the nervous nervous system response that we're getting isn't as strong. It's not because it's not harmful. It's because we kind of learned that this is our norm and our bodies and brains are incredibly adaptive, which is helpful in some ways. But in this case, it's kind of giving us this false sense of, oh, this is okay when it's really not. So my advice is to, you know, increase your self-care increase your regulations, you know, increase your connection with people who really understand what you're dealing with. Um, Yeah. And I hope that that helps kind of move you through this, helps you feel better. And also I hope that this validates your experience because I know how tough that kind of job can be. Now let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, could you talk more about how to handle life if you struggle with chronic bouts of depression and or suicidality? but you still need to achieve goals and keep your job. 
it's one thing to take time off when you're actually struggling, but an entirely different one to, um, if you struggle for years on end, even with the perfect treatment, in my case at least, still often have many hours, days, or even weeks when I can barely get anything done. I'm pursuing an academic career, which is already very stressful in and of itself, but handling my non-cooperative brain that turns against me every few days is more often than not making any real work impossible, even as I feel I'm progressing in treatment. Additionally, how do you grieve that your life needs to be adjusted to your mental health sometimes and that your issues prevent you from achieving things you want for yourself? Can you ever really accept that? I wish you all the best. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, a lot to unpack here. Okay, first, if we're struggling with chronic bouts of suicidality and depression, I can't help but consider the fact that we might need some difference in our care. And what I mean by that is either maybe we need to take time off to go into treatment. I know it's not ideal. Just hold on, hang with me. If we go into more intensive treatment, then maybe we can, the hope would be, fingers crossed, that we're able to get our symptoms that are the most bothersome into remission so they don't bother us anymore. And yes, I know things can come and go. It's just like <clears throat> our physical health, health is just like our mental health. And so even if we went into the hospital and you know overcame our pneumonia, that doesn't mean that the next time it's like flu season, we don't <clears throat> get this like chest cold, right? Because we kind of have that weakness for it. Obviously, your weakness is going to be these suicidal thoughts, these depressive thoughts and symptoms, right? But I would like to get us to a place where it's not affecting us all, every day, all day. So there's that. But then there's also this piece of like, maybe medication needs to be changed or improved or increased or something. I'm not a doctor, so talk to your psychiatrist. But I feel like there's something missing here where we're not able to manage. Our symptoms are unmanageable. We can't function. Therefore, the treatment that you're getting, even though you said it's the perfect treatment, I would have to argue that there's something missing if we're still having these types of situations. I mean, yes, I've had patients who have very persistent depression, but especially with all of the options out there now, everything from um, atypical antipsychotics being added to antidepressants, uh, more intensive treatments are available. ECT has come a long way. You know, there's a lot of different things that can help. And I would encourage you to, I'm sure you are, but let them know this is happening. Let them know that you still feel that your depression and your suicidal thoughts are such an impediment to you and your life. Because I am just a firm believer that it doesn't have to be that way. We just have to find the right, you know, whether it's medication and treatments, sort of different type of therapy, medication stays the same. We need to find the right combination and we haven't. And so the way that we handle life if we struggle with these chronic bouts is to recognize the triggers. Honestly, I know I could get into like, well, how do I, um, you know, alter my goals or the things that I want to kind of meet me where I'm at? And yeah, we can do that. But I believe that we can still accomplish everything we want to. We just have to better understand our depressive and suicidal thoughts. Like where's our depression symptoms coming from? What are triggers for this? Is there a certain time of year when it's at its worst? Does it cycle every five days? Like those are all important things to notice. Like for instance, a good example would be, um, I had a patient once who, and this is, she had um, bipolar depression, but in the summertime, she around like June, mid-June to maybe early July at the latest, she would have hypomania. And this wouldn't happen any other time of the year. And so we got to where we would recognize this pattern. And 
she could feel herself ramping up. And so I would call her psychiatrist. He was a great guy just down the street. He would increase her uh, antipsychotic medication. I think she was on like Latuda or something. Ramp that up for a little bit, like double the dose for about a month and then bring her back down. And we got it to the point where she didn't have that anymore. There was no ramp up. And I bring that up as the fact that like, if we know when this is getting at its worst, can we increase other medications or something to get you through? Can we increase our therapy sessions? What we, There has to be something else we can do. I'm a firm believer in that there is action we can take to help us because I don't think you need to alter your academic career or change your goals. We might just need to alter our treatment because even if it feels like it's perfect, it clearly isn't because perfect treatment would mean that you have all your symptoms managed. And I know other people out there might be like, but some of us just have really, really persistent, you know, depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or eating disorders or whatever. And I would say, well, yes, but we need to find ways to manage it. Then that becomes the goal so that you can go on to live your best life. Do whatever you want to do. I really just feel like that's what we need to focus on. And maybe it means thinking outside the box, like, I don't know if you're in Washington or in, yeah, Washington, Oregon, California, or Colorado, I believe, or New York. I don't know if New York is true, but they're running treatments for depression and suicidality when it comes to uh, psilocybin, microdosing mushrooms. Um, that's been really helpful, for, especially for persistent suicidality, I've heard. So there's those types of things. There's other types of medication. There's things like ECT. I know it's not ideal for a lot of people, but I'm just throwing out ideas because we might have to think outside the box to get you into a place where your symptoms aren't running the show. You're running the show. And sometimes they, you know, we feel them creep up, but we manage them. And so that's really what I would encourage you to focus on. And then the piece of like grieving, I think there does have to be grief whenever there's any kind of adverse experiences, setbacks, um, what shoulda, coulda, woulda been. I think there's grief in life a lot. And we can always think that life is going to look one kind of way. And I'd, I'd assume that you had this certain view of it. And it's okay to take time to be angry, to be sad, to be mad about this, the fact that it didn't turn out the way that you had thought it would. But just as a little silver lining, I want to let you know that Life never turns out exactly as we planned and thank God for it because we don't really know all of the experiences or situations along the way. So we can't really tell the future. We can't plan for X, Y, or Z. And again, I do believe that you'll be able to accomplish all that you want. We just need to find you a better type of treatment. Again, whether that's like therapeutic treatment, medication, talk to your treatment team and, and really let them know, hey, this is getting in the way of my life. And I, I need us to try something different. Um, and this might mean that you need to take some time off to, to figure that out or go into an intensive treatment, but we can get you there. I've seen it happen. I've had a patient, even um, I have two experiences. One in the eating disorder treatment center, we had this woman who had been in treatment. I don't even know, let's say like nine times, like a bunch of different times. And she was chronically suicidal and ECT, which she went into halfway through her treatment with us, life-changing for her. The short-term memory loss did bother her for a bit, but because her depression and her suicidality finally lifted, she was like, I'll take it. So that, then I had a patient in the hospital system when I worked um, for Prime Healthcare. She, uh, chronic suicidality, a bunch of attempts, and she was really on watch with us for a long time. She got a vagus nerve stimulator placed inside. Um, it's like a little, they put it kind of right under your collarbone. It's a what's the word I'm looking for? 
anyway, it's 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 they in, put it inside of you a little bit. I can't think of the word for some reason. It's Monday. I'm waking up. Um, but anyway, they put that in her, and that vagus nerve stimulator took away her suicidal thoughts. So ask about other options. There are treatments available. Let's get you feeling better. I believe we can. Keep me posted, okay? Moving on to question number three. It says, Katie, any tips to open up in therapy? I feel like I tense up every session and no words come out. So I end up just not talking all session, even though I want to. I trust my therapist, so I know it's not that. Yet I still don't feel comfortable talking and I don't know what to do about it. I guess my advice when it comes to things like this is instead of feeling like, oh, I need to figure out how to open up. Let's talk about the fact that we can't. Let's dig into that. Let's not go in with the goal of opening up in therapy. Let's go in with the goal of figuring out why we can't. That's actually really helpful. And I know it seems like counterintuitive or like it's opposite day or something. But the truth is that it's often really help. There's a ton of helpful information in that. Meaning that if we consider, okay, I have a tough time opening up. Let's explore it. Maybe I learned that I also don't really open up to my friends or family. I actually don't open up to anyone. Well, huh, I wonder where that comes from. Maybe it wasn't safe to open up or to be myself growing up. Maybe I didn't feel like it was going to be okay. Maybe I was harmed. Maybe it was like an unspoken rule in my household. Let's be curious about that. Figure that part out. Because I find often when we focus instead of on the ultimate goal of like opening up in therapy, if we focus on the issue getting in the way, we can actually get to that goal. It's almost like, because I talk about therapy like, Sometimes like I'm, uh, I come to your house and when I come to your house, sometimes you let me in the front door and you're like, hey, and then you tell me all about this. I'm struggling with this. And I think it comes from here and you're showing me around. And this is the room where like my childhood trauma lives and I don't have to do that. And then this is where, you know, people pleasing behavior has really gotten in the way. And then, you know, you show me around. Others come to therapy and the door is like bolted. It's locked. It's got like a metal plate on the outside. And so we have to find another way in try to check all the windows, maybe see if the back door is unlocked. And that's kind of what this is, is like you are hoping to open up, but your door is locked and you're not letting anybody in. And so we have to figure out why. We have to check other windows or try to find another way in. And being curious, not judgmental about why this is happening can really, really help. So let's start there. And again, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but that's really what I find effective. And I just remembered the word for the vagus nerve stimulator is an implant. I know my brain's just not wasn't there. Okay. There's a comment on this. It says, as an add-on, I've noticed that I have a hard time opening up about my current issues, particularly my feelings and disordered eating thoughts. Interesting. Even though I have a great relationship and sense of trust with my therapist, however, I can open up about past issues easily. Unlike the original author of this post, I end up talking nonstop about things in the past. How do I know if I'm talking about the past to avoid current issues or if I maybe need to work through the past? How can I make myself more comfortable with opening up about things that I'm currently dealing with? That is incredibly common. And I think the reason is, is that the things that are currently happening, we still don't know how we feel about it. It can feel very raw, very fresh, very new. It can about past things too. I'm not, everyone's experience is different. So if you are the the reverse, like that, that's fine. There's no judgment here. But I'm just saying for this particular person, I think that we might not have been able to repress all the emotions yet from these new experiences because they're still currently happening. And so it feels too, 
uh, invasive. We feel too vulnerable. It, it feels too uncomfortable to get into in therapy. And so again, I would just tell you, I would encourage you to let your therapist know this is happening. And the fact that you talk easily about the past, I'm curious if there's any emotional charge with it. Meaning, do we ever find like our throat getting kind of tight and we want to cry? Or we find our stomach like turning into knots or we get really tense and we kind of stuff it down. Do we find an emotional charge coming up? Do we feel dysregulated at all when we talk about the past? If the answer is no, then you don't need to continue working through it. Then in fact, you are talking about that because it's easier instead of talking about what you truly need to, which is the current stuff. And just as a heads up for anybody, this is a good tip for therapy, is that those things that you want to shy away from or not talk about are actually the things that you need to talk about the most. Yes, I know that's a shitty answer, but it's the truth. We, as people, our nervous system is wired to keep us safe. And so if we feel dysregulated, our innate knee-jerk reaction is to, to squash it. We don't need to feel that right now. We need to survive. We need to get through life. We need to move forward. But that inability to address and to acknowledge only makes it persist longer, makes us feel more uncomfortable for a long period of time. So all in all, just know that in therapy, the things that we don't want to talk about are the things we actually need to talk about the most. The reason we don't want to talk about them is because they're uncomfortable, because they dysregulate us, because they feel icky or whatever. So let's lean into that. Now, another add-on says, I've been in therapy for a couple of years now, and I've suffered my emotions, or I've stuffed, sorry, I've stuffed my emotions down so much that I feel completely disconnected from them, and, and, I'm, and, and I am unable to cry. Wow, that was a tongue twister for some reason. I am wondering if you have any tips on how to let myself feel my feelings, and how do I feel comfortable enough to cry in front of my therapist? I'm scared to show that new level of vulnerability. Thanks. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. A couple of pieces here. There's some homework you can do on your own. And then again, I'm going to go back to my initial kind of thoughts where it's like, let's talk about this struggle with our therapist. Not that we need to cry or that things need to change. We need to be able to identify the feelings and acknowledge them. Let's talk with our therapist about the fact that we can't do that and we don't know why. Let's be curious, not judgmental about this process. Letting them know like what you told me. I just can't even cry in front of you and I don't know why. And I feel like I'm disconnected from my emotions. Like I just, ugh, I just don't want to. Let's talk about that, that experience itself. When did it start? Where did it come from? Did anybody else show us? Maybe they verbally told us and taught us how to do this, or maybe it was just more through behaviors. Did anybody else in our life do this regularly? Hmm. Let's think about that, right? Let's explore that in therapy. But then the homework that you can do on your own, when it comes to emotional 
intelligence slash the ability to acknowledge and identify our emotions. For a lot of us, that just takes like repetitive or consistent work, meaning that each and every day, well, let's not say every day, that's a lot. Let's instead say three days a week. I want you starting, so this is Thursday. I want you to on Friday at the end of your day, before you go to bed, maybe, you know, when you're winding down for the day, this is your last homework thing. I want you to pull up the feelings wheel, go to the feelingswheel.com. And I want you to pick out three to five emotions that you felt that day. And I want you to describe a little bit about what was going on. So let's say today I felt a little irritable. Then I would say, you know, I felt irritable when, um, uh, when that guy cut me off in traffic or when the, I was in the line for Starbucks and it usually takes about five minutes and it took 10 minutes and it ran me late for work, right? Let's talk about where that emotion came up from when we remember it happening, when we felt some kind of way, let's start doing that. If you can't come up with where it came from, pick an emotion, even if you don't know if you felt it. This is like, if that's too much, let's go backwards. Let's pick some emotions, just some words that sound fun and interesting. And then why don't you tell me what it's like for you to experience them? Where do you feel in your body? What are your thoughts? Give me a couple sentences, two or three sentences. Don't get crazy. We don't need like whole, unless you really want to run with it, go with for it. But all of that work will help us get better at identifying those emotions and understanding our experience with them. And that intelligence will slowly allow us to kind of reconnect. It's like we're rebuilding the connections between our brain and body so that we can have a feeling happen. We can acknowledge what it is. We can identify it and we can express it. But one thing at a time, we're trying to go, you know, all, all or nothing. And want you to take baby steps. So let's start there and keep me posted. Okay. Now let's move on to question number four. This question says, please, Katie, can you talk about medical trauma while battling chronic terminal illness and how to beat it? I'm currently in this situation. I honestly want to give up having meds, seeing doctors, or even eating. I'm exhausted from so many appointments for so many years to end up sicker than expected. And on top of it being treated badly due to my rare illness, I'm very unwell mentally, more than physically. There is no known cure for my diseases, and I even lost my ability to speak as a result. I'm using app phones. Um, I speak using app phones. I used to be healthy, so I don't know how to go to therapy again if I had the courage. I also can't hold a pen or draw on top of my utter fatigue and fighting so hard for so long for help. I'm also a single mom with no social support. I am so sorry you're going through that. That sounds incredibly, incredibly exhausting and just terrifying. Medical trauma unfortunately is incredibly common. And the reason being is that when we have a medical emergency or an issue, we automatically already are terrified and fear for our own life or safety, right? If I get in a car crash and need to be rushed to the emergency room in uh, an ambulance, that's terrifying. Not to mention when we have repeatedly gone to the doctors, not only to be like gaslit, I have actually a video about medical gaslighting that might be helpful. You can look that one up. But when they tell us, oh, you're not really that sick, or they run a bunch of tests and they don't know, all of that's very, very terrifying. And so my encouragement for you is to use, because you said you're using this app phone to speak, let's journal this way. Can you 
Can you journal? As, I mean, I don't know your capabilities, but I think it could be helpful for you to get this out. I don't know if there are groups that you can go to or anything like that. I know therapy, you said you're still a little nervous about it. That's okay. But let's start venting about everything that's going on. Even if we like, we, we have it typed up using our app and then we just delete it. It doesn't matter. The goal is for you to get it out. And I have a feeling, my suspicion when I read this question is that one of the things I always tell my patients that can be incredibly difficult and damaging, and I would, be, I also like believe that it could kind of amplify our trauma is when we can't speak up for ourselves. I think that's a lot of times why children, um, you know, can feel even more traumatized when things happen to us when we're young. We don't have an understanding. We can't speak up about it. We don't have words to put to it. But in your case, the fact that you're unable to write or to talk that's t- terrifying. That's terrible. That means that all that we feel and experience is kind of stuck inside. And so my encouragement is for you to start journaling about it. Start processing it. Now, I don't know about your physical abilities, but the shakeout can help regulate our system. Also, dunking our face in cold water can help. If that's all too much, maybe have someone bring you a cold rag and put that on your neck, then put it on your face. And I want you to cover your face for a second so that you have this response. You know when you put cold water and you go... I want you to have that deep breath in. And the reason for that is that it's called our diving reflex and that triggers your vagus nerve and it actually improves your mood a little bit and it regulates your nervous system. So those are just some of the things that we can do. If if you have someone who can help you, you can also do some vagus nerve stimulation. I actually have a video about vagus nerve stimulation. It's a few years old. Look that one up too. Um, sucking and swallowing can trigger it. There's a lot of things that we can do that I think you could be able to do even if your mobility is compromised. So we'll find a way to get you there. But when it comes to trauma, the best thing we can do is work to get some of that, some of those thoughts and feelings out and to also get them out of our bodies as well. And I know that can be tricky when we, you know, obviously it's medical trauma. We have chronic illnesses and terminal illnesses that we're battling. We need to find some ways. So give those things a go. Let me know how it feels for you. Um, I'm happy to do a video. I don't know if I have a video on medical trauma itself. I know medical gaslighting, I did one. But if not, I'm happy to to cover that topic. You guys let me know in the comments what you'd like me to cover in that type of a video because I'm more than happy to do it, okay? Take care of yourself and keep me posted. Let me know what works and doesn't, okay? There's other stuff we can do for sure. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hey, Katie, for those of us who couldn't rely on anyone as a child, what do people mean by asking for help or asking for support? Great question. What would it mean if I asked for help? What could someone do to help me help make me feel better? What are the options? As a child, I've learned that if I freeze, it will work itself out. But if I were to stand up, I could get hurt. I have gotten hurt. If I'm really upset by the loss of someone or an opportunity in that moment, I think about reaching out. I go numb. I distract and I dissociate and instinctively just keep my head down and keep walking. I don't know what else to do. Is asking for a favor the same thing? Kind of. We'll talk about that. I feel incredibly uncomfortable asking anything of anyone because all I know is that love is conditional. I'm putting myself in a vulnerable position by asking someone to do something for me. I risk being rejected or ignored, devalued, and made to feel selfish and demanding, and then putting pressure on me to repay the favor. Thank you, Katie. This is a great question. Okay. Now we're going to go in stages because there's like layers to this question. The first piece is like, what does it mean to look for help? Or what, what would it mean if I asked for help? What does it look like to ask for support? And the truth about it is, 
in a perfect world where there weren't any of these traumas and these past concerns about like, oh, I don't, you know, I go numb. I'd rather, I then have to repay the favor, all of that. Let's keep that aside for a second. In a perfect world, asking someone for help or support looks like me saying to my friend Joanna, let's say, hey, do you have time to talk um, later this week? I've been having a tough time. I just need to get some perspective. Or calling her and saying, hey, do you have a minute? I just, I've been having a rough time and I just kind of wanted to get your, your thoughts on it. Or at least I needed to vent if you could just listen. I could call my mom, same type of thing. I could talk to Sean, say, yeah, it's been a rough day. Can, can I just vent to you for a minute? That's what it looks like, okay? In other ways, it can look like me reaching out to someone at work or school and asking for their help, meaning, can you help me with this project? I have this, but I don't quite understand that. Could do you, do you understand? Could you share that with me? Could you teach me? Could I see your notes from that class at work? I could say, hey, I'm working on this project. Do you happen to have the graph for that? I don't want to recreate it if we already have it. Right, that those are ways that we ask for help, and then asking for support, depending on the scenario. And hopefully, that gives you kind of an idea of what a natural non-trauma response um, way that asking and reaching out for support and help can what it can look like. Okay, now when we grew up as children to feel like it wasn't safe, that if we did reach out or if we did speak up, we were harmed. I actually have a video. It'll probably be coming out around when this is coming out, um, where I kind of talk about this a little bit, feeling invisible. But if we were harmed when we spoke up, then of course our body and brain tells us it's not okay. It's not safe. It's best if we just stuff it deep, freeze, put our head down, walk through it, move out, get away from there. And so my encouragement for you, instead of trying to reach out for help right now, in your own time, can we journal about what it might look like? Based on what I said, could you imagine one person in your life that you might speak up and ask for something or ask for support? What would that feel like for you? Can we play some of these things out? And if that's too much, can we just write about and talk about the experience we have, the beliefs we have about reaching out? Like you kind of told me like it feels really unsafe. Tell me all about that. When did this start? What examples do we have of us speaking up and us be, it not being okay, it not being safe, us being harmed? Can we walk through that? Now, if this is too dysregulating, we're going to want to do this with a therapist. I don't know if you you feel okay enough to reach out for a therapist, but that could be incredibly helpful. And I can try to assuage your anxieties by telling you this is a professional. They're getting paid for their time. So you're already repaying the favor if you want to look at it that way that's what they got into work. They like worked on their career for years and years and years, gathered hours for years and years and years to do this. So something that they love doing, you're allowing them to fulfill what they like. Like our career, my career is incredibly fulfilling and you're allowing someone to feel that through working with you and helping you. So maybe we reach out to a therapist and we do that work with them. But instead of jumping again to this like end goal of reaching out for support, reaching out for help, Let's unpack our beliefs around that. Let's get to know why it is so difficult. Let's understand that why first before we try to push forward and get get that thing. Do you know what I mean? Because otherwise we're kind of like fighting against ourselves. We feel really, uh, maybe we, we feel it feels really dangerous. We feel almost traumatized by trying to ask for help. Let's like back it up and try to understand like why that response is the response. And then we can kind of tease that out, challenge it, 
that's where therapy can come in. We can find ways to maybe see things from another perspective. Like if someone asked you for help, would you harm them? If someone asked if they could vent to you or share with you, would you think that they're being super selfish and would you hate them? Like we can check some of our facts. We can talk about it. But let's work on that before we jump to trying to ask for help because that's going to take time. We could start if you're like, but I want to figure that out. We could start with something small, like uh, a, a simple example that I can think of is in work or in life, could we ask someone for something like, hey, could I borrow your pen real quick? Like, let's say we're out to dinner and they only, they didn't, the pen doesn't work and you're signing that they, we could ask a friend if they have a pen in their purse. We can ask someone for a piece of gum. Can we ask someone for a quarter when we're filling up a, a parking meter? Now I know a lot of them use cards. I'm just throwing out random ideas that came to my mind. Can we, um, that might be too big to ask someone to like take us somewhere. But those are just some ways that I would would start. I would try to do it that way. Um, little things. Could I borrow your jacket? Could I could I have a quarter to put in here? Could I borrow your pen? Uh, could I have a piece of gum? Um, do you happen to have a hair tie? I'm just trying to think. A hand lotion, like something you can ask for. That's a small ask. Those would be. That's where I would probably have you start. If you were my patient, that's what I would have you start doing. But I want to understand it more first. Okay. I hope that wasn't too confusing. I really could have got on a tangent there. Try to pull it back, right the ship. Let me know if you have follow-ups. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hello, Katie. I hope all is well. It is. I hope all is well with you. It says, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on eldest daughter syndrome. Is this something that can happen even if your parents weren't uninvolved or unable to show up for important aspects? Yes, it can. We'll talk about this. Is it even real or factually supported? Does it solely come from the actions or emotional availability demonstrated by the parent, or can it just be a pre-programmed, if you will, into the daughter's personality? Is there any correlation to specific diagnoses that may pop up down the road? I feel like anxiety would be a big one. You are correct. Um, It's something that I've always been curious about and would love to hear your take. Okay, so eldest daughter syndrome, in a nutshell, means that when you are the oldest daughter or the only daughter in a family you are often expected to take on more uh, emotional support in the family, more caretaker roles. Like you might be one that has to do a lot more stuff around the house or you're expected to cook or clean. So there's more of a burden on you to do more of those household tasks than there are on your brothers or your younger siblings, your younger sister. And the reason that they talk about this is because parents often ask older children to assist. Now, I'm not saying this in and of itself is bad, but it's the expectation. Um, It's the expectation that, that the oldest daughter is supposed to take on so much responsibility. And what this really means, what I would call this, instead of eldest daughter syndrome, it tends to what they're hypothesizing. Now, I haven't seen any research to support this. I have seen a ton of articles Articles are not research, FYI. No one is doing research about this. However, there is a lot of research about a parentified child. And I think that's what this is. Yes, it probably is more likely to be an oldest daughter than the youngest son, let's say. But every family dynamic is going to be different. But it's the household labor that they talk about. And when someone is a parentified child, that means that they often have to take on a lot of different responsibilities that other children in the home don't. And it's actually not responsibilities that a child should be taking on, okay? My thoughts are that it's incredibly common. Parentified children happen all the time. And that doesn't always mean that our parents 
weren't doing their best or that they weren't involved or they weren't supportive. Even personally, I could say that I was like a parentified child in some ways. And it was because my brother and I would get home before my mom got home and I would cook us food after school. I was in charge of like, you know, I would let the dog out. I would do things around the home. Again, this isn't a bad thing necessarily, but I slowly became, I felt like I was more responsible for my brother who was almost four years older than me than I probably should have. Like I learned how to do my laundry way before he did. Um, I would sometimes do his laundry. I would clean up the kitchen. I would make sure I made us food. I would, they, my family used to joke that if my brother Nick moved out, he better take me with him or he's going to starve to death. <laughs> so, and I was younger, but I was the oldest daughter. I'm the only daughter. And part of me thinks that some of that is societal. Some of that is the expectation of the, you know, the woman to do things in the home. Um, and I think that's where this is coming from. But again, it's, it's, if we want to talk psychological phrases and what research I would look up, it'd be about parentification or a parentified child. And the the issues that we find come up with this the most, anxiety, you are correct. Anxiety disorders are big ones. And I think that's because of the worry. Remember, um, generalized anxiety disorder means we have uncontrollable worry about things. And that worry is, you know, kind of woven into us because we have more responsibility than we we should at our developmental level. And the fact that we're responsible for other things can create this like concern for different aspects. Oh my God, did I do that? Wait, but if I don't, if I'm not home in time, I better hurry back or I'm not gonna be able to feed my my siblings. Or what if mom forgot, right? We think about things way too much. We can worry about our parents' financial situation. We can worry about uh, making food, cleaning the house. And again, it's not bad for children to have chores and responsibilities at their developmental level, but we shouldn't feel responsible for other beings in the home. Okay. So there's there's that piece. Um, and so anxiety is a big one. Perfectionism, I know it's not a diagnosis, but it's like perfectionism is really strong when people struggle with this eldest child syndrome or the eldest daughter syndrome or what I would call parentified child. Um, we can struggle to um, being a people pleaser. And that can be because, you know, we never felt like we could say no or set boundaries because that responsibility was greater than we really what it should have been. We didn't know how to advocate for what we needed. We always put other people's needs first. We can also, um, you know, struggle with self-care. We can find ourselves, you know, like going over the top for everything, like always giving people way more than is necessary. Um, enmeshment, codependency, all kinds of issues like that. I could even argue that it could lead to depressive symptoms or maybe even eating disorder behavior because we don't get to do anything for ourselves. Our self-care is usually really, really poor. And eating disorder, self-injury, things like that, because we try to find a way to cope with what we feel because we don't feel like we can take up space, right? It's other people first. They're more important. We can even feel invisible sometimes. Um, so those are just my thoughts about it. But again, I really think this is more parentified child. Yes, I believe it does happen more with like the oldest daughter, <clears throat> but I don't think it's exclusive to that. I think it's more about family dynamics and what parents expect of children. And so if you're a parent out there and you're like, oh my God, but I have my child do things, Having a child take care of their space and be responsible for themselves slowly but surely as they get older is appropriate. It's when we place expectations or responsibility onto what we think, let's say our daughter is 15 and she has a 10-year-old brother. If we're like, well, make sure you have to look out for your brother. You need to take care of it. Make sure you should do his laundry and you you make the food for you guys. It starts to get a little 
then there should be extras. Okay, well, you take the day off. You go get to do what you want to do. Then I take care of you as the parent. There needs to be a balance. There needs to be an understanding. And most importantly, there needs to be a conversation about the fact that they are not responsible. Now, I know it's not cut and dried like that. And things are, you know, life is complicated and relationship dynamics are different. But we just need to have conversations with our children. We need to check in. We need to make sure that we are being the parent and we're not expecting one of our children to parent a younger child. That's when they kind of lose their childhood. Okay. I hope that was interesting. I'd love to hear your guys' take on that. Have you heard of this term? What did you think about it? Um, It was interesting to read about and to think about because it is common and Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts as to why that could be. So I'd love to hear yours. But thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for being part of the community. I love and appreciate each and every one of you. Have a great week. Do your homework. And I'll see you next time.